Hello everyone and welcome to Raw Talk Live COVID Decoded series. This year, we're making the most of the new normal and bringing you a virtual discussion series all about the COVID-19 pandemic. Over eight weeks this summer, we live streamed our discussions with experts on COVID-19 and its impact on science and our society. For this installment of the series, we explore the intersections of COVID-19 pandemic and climate change. We're joined by two guests, Chuk Odenibo, Director of Ancestral Services at Future Ancestor Services and a PhD student at the University of Ottawa in Medical Geography, and Gideon Foreman, Climate Change Policy Analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation, working to promote renewable energy projects and the expansion of active and public transportation. We discuss the parallels and differences between the climate crisis and the pandemic, and how lessons learned from our pandemic response can be used in the fight against climate change. Before we jump into the discussion, we'd like to acknowledge the land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have this opportunity to work on this land. One last thing before we get started. We did have some connectivity issues with our guest Chuck in the first 20 minutes of the conversation, which unfortunately affected the audio quality. Things do get better after 20 minutes, and we didn't want to cut the audio since it really is a great discussion, but if you wanted to skip ahead 20 minutes, we understand. Okay, let's get going. Hello again, welcome back to COVID Decoded. I'm Jesse, and I'll be hosting our fifth installment today on the intersections of the pandemic and climate change. As we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the land that we are on, including the traditional territories of the Huron-Wendat, Piton, Seneca, and Mississaugas of the F Credit First Nations. In living and working on this land, uh, we acknowledge the Dish with One Spoon Treaty, which asks, us, which asks us to peacefully share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. And that's particularly relevant for our discussions today. Our meeting place here in Toronto is still home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. If you're new to Raw Talk, we are a graduate student-run podcast about medical science and the people who make it happen. Check out the description for more information on our show, and check us out wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank our incredibly hardworking team behind the series, including Alex, Kat, Aaron, Yagnesh, Damia, Richie, and many more. Um, now to introduce our guests for today... Chuck Odenibo is Director of Ancestral Services at Futures Ancestor Services and a PhD student at the University of Ottawa in Medical Geography. Proudly Frank Franco-Albertan, Chuck is passionate about the intersections between culture, health, and the environment. As a former ambassador for the outdoors with MEC and an alumni of the first Ocean Bridge cohort, Chuck was recently ranked among the top 25 environmentalists under 25 in Canada by the Starfish for three years in a row, in addition to other similar accomplishments. Gideon Foreman, is a climate change policy analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation working to promote renewable energy projects and the expansion of active and public transportation. For over a dec decade, he was executive director of CAPE, the Canadian Association for Phys of Physicians for the Environment, leading campaigns against lawn pesticides and coal-fired power. In recognition for this environmental work, Gideon was awarded a Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2013. Uh, lastly, as we get our stream underway here, be sure to send your questions to our live YouTube chat box as we'll reserve 15 minutes at the end uh, to bring those up with our guests. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our guests, Gideon and Chuck. Hello guys, how are you doing today? Good. Hello, <laughs> Thanks. Um, so many people might not actually know um, much about uh, future ancestor services or uh, the uh, David Suzuki Foundation. So maybe can uh, you start us off, Gideon, to tell us a little bit about what, what it is you do? Sure. sure. I mean, um, 
Uh, people have probably heard of our famous uh, founder, David Suzuki, famous for uh, the nature of things. Uh, David's actually not on the board anymore, but uh, his presence is very much felt and, and very much a guiding a light for the organization. And my piece of the puzzle is on uh, climate change policy. Um, I'm a policy analyst, and a lot of what that really means is that I take the science that's out there, uh, for example, on public transit issues, and I try to give it legs. I take the science and I use it um, to talk to government, typically federal or provincial government, sometimes municipal governments, to get them to bring in environmental policy that's favorable uh, to the environment. So um, we might uh, bring them a piece of, a piece of research showing that bike lanes um, are good for a whole range of things in a the city. They're good for business, they're good for safety, good for the environment, as a way of getting uh, a city council to build more bike lanes. So that's really what I do. I take the, the research out there and I give it political legs. Awesome. Thanks. And Chuck? Hello, uh, bonjour tout le monde. Hi, everyone. My name is Chuck. Um, this is really exciting to be in front of you guys today. So, um, Future Answer Services, we're actually a new company. We recently started, we recently were officially launched in uh, April 2020. And um, it's kind of embedded in our name, but really our goal is to make Canada a better country for the next generation of Canadians. We want to be good future ancestors. We acknowledge the ancestors of the future generation, and so we want to be good future ancestors to that generation. And our work normally takes place in the spaces of climate justice, social justice, uh, equity, and environmentalism. And so right now, a small team of four um, of four service providers. We are a black and indigenous owned and run company. We're also all under the age of 30, so we're also youth led and youth run. Um, though once we all pass 30, we will then just become non youth <laughs> So I've had someone ask me if we only like hire you. I'm like, no, not necessarily. Um, and yeah, that's a little bit about us. Awesome. Thanks so much. And we're really honored to have you both joining us today. Uh, and I'm really excited for the, for the discussion that we're about to have. Um, so Actually, to kind of set the background for that discussion, uh, one of the things we wanted to start it off with was actually talking about how important climate change was as an issue, especially in Canada, um, but also around the world in the past kind of year before the pandemic hit. Um, and I think that's something that people might have forgotten maybe in the, in the tumult uh, lately. So um, maybe Gideon, can you kind of recap the, the situation that we were in and, um, and it, as a backdrop for, for our discussion here? Thanks. Yeah, no, really good question. I mean, with the, with the pandemic, it's easy to forget where we were just half a year ago or a year ago. Um, so in Canada here, in the fall of 2019, we had a federal election, of course, and climate change, amazingly, was one of the top issues, one of the top two issues in that election. All the parties had to have climate uh, policies because Canadians were demanding it. Uh, the context was also the youth climate movement, and who can forget the sort of one of the leaders, not the only, but an important leader of that youth movement, of course, Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish woman. Uh, Greta was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in recognition of her work. But it wasn't just Greta. I mean, what was so extraordinary was that hundreds of cities around the world were holding these youth climate marches. They were called Fridays for Future here in, in Canada, where young people, high school people, and some younger, uh, were self-organizing around the climate issue because of the passion and concern that they felt. So that was an extraordinary moment. And then, of course, the backdrop was the fact that we were already and are already seeing climate change in work. Uh, recently, there have been these horrific uh, um, 
hot weathers, hot, hot temperatures that we've been seeing in the Arctic uh, in the north and that we've been seeing in the South Pole as well, uh, record-breaking weather. Um, the context is also the forest fires that we've been seeing in recent years in places like Australia and California. And then, of course, at the scientific level, the backdrop has been the work done by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change with their uh, crucial report saying that basically we have 10, 11 years uh, by 2030, we have to reduce emissions significantly on the order of about 50% if we're going to keep to within safe limits. So there have been a whole range of things in terms of the context uh, the, at the political level, what we're seeing from young people, uh, seeing the actual effects of climate change, and then what the science is saying. And that, and that really was the world that we were in until the pandemic struck. And of course, none, none of that stopped. The climate change is still continuing, of course. The movement is still going. It's just having to adapt to a, to a COVID world. Yeah. And I should mention, actually, that our, our podcast was planning on doing, every year we typically do a live show in, in person, which obviously we had to cancel. But the topic that we were chosen uh, before the pandemic hit was climate change. Uh, and everyone was really, really excited about it. And um, so that's, it definitely has been put on hold in my, in my kind of perception of it. But I think um, recognizing the intersections between the two that uh, we're hoping to talk about today. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's going to be part of the, the recovery uh, that everyone's talking about. Um, so maybe you could also help us understand a little bit about the, the impacts of the pandemic on climate change um, that we've seen so far. Uh, Gideon? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think we have to be careful uh, against, you know, what I would call sort of silver lining. I mean, some some of the commentary that's coming out of the pandemic in the environmental movement is always in it wonderful that we're, you know, seeing these improvements in, in things like air pollution. I, th I think the first thing to say is that the pandemic is a terrible tragedy, uh, full stop. Uh, it's been horrific uh, for people around the world, and it's and we're not finished with it yet. So we have to acknowledge that first and foremost. That said, it, it is also the case that we are seeing some quite extraordinary things happening around the world. And yes, some of them uh, are good news for the environment. But of course, this is not the way we would want to bring about environmental change. But we are seeing some positives. I mean, um, early in the pandemic, as early as March of this year, we were already seeing dramatic drops in some components of air pollution, things like nitrogen dioxide. And people, uh, your listeners may have seen these quite extraordinary graphics that were going around in places like the, the, the Guardian uh, in the UK and other outlets showing these pictures from China and the US. Um, of dramatic drops in air pollution. I mean, in parts of China, you know, there was a, a th up to a 30% drop in things like nitrogen dioxide, which, as I mentioned, is a, is a component of air pollution. So, so that is is very impressive, and yes, that is a that is a positive. Uh, coming out of it. On the other hand, um, some in the business community and some governments have also used the crisis as a way of saying that we, we can't bring in environmental protections uh, with respect to uh, industry. So, you know, the industry, some of the industries are saying this is no time to bring in more red tape and more environmental regulation. So we're seeing this relaxing of environmental regulations in some parts of the world, uh, certainly here in Canada. The oil companies were all over it. They saw the, uh, the opportunity immediately for relaxed regulations in their sector. So we're seeing a, a, a number of um, impacts from the pandemic, some quite positive in terms of reductions in air pollution and some uh, negative on the regulatory side. Yeah. Chuck, did you, did you want to jump in there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, Gideon brings up some excellent points. I think one of the things I wanted to highlight is that prior to uh, Greta ever stepping on the scene, they've been out of really interesting, concrete, powerful uh, actions for climate change that young people have taken in and across uh, Canada. So some of the ones that come to mind immediately are Dominique Souris, uh, who uh, with um, Anna Gonzalez founded the Climate Lab, an, uh, an organization that's seeking to uh, bring young young voices into the political component of climate change to really sort of help direct that, but then they also provide micro grants and funding to like encourage young people to come up with ideas to combat climate change. Um, Carolyn Murner in Vancouver who started up this group, uh, this organization called Climate Guides, where they would pair up a young person in Vancouver with a professional. They've also partnered with the David Suzuki Foundation out in Vancouver, um, and they would have a limited time frame and a budget to come up with a business idea that would uh, have a positive impact on climate change. So I think they had a zero, uh, one of the, the participants actually founded a zero waste store in uh, Vancouver. Um, and then Autumn Winters, who is very well known as, you know, um, an who's an indigenous person who's well known as a water keeper. So she's been very sort of uh, vocal and prominent in the Canadian climate change movement as well. So sort of highlighting that uh, prior to um, our focus on COVID, the focus on climate change you know, has been a very strong thing for Canadian youth even before Greta became that sort of international symbol for young people against climate change. And then zooming into sort of uh, COVID-19 and the COVID-19 impacts in relation uh, to climate change, we're also seeing um, a lot of, so climate change, uh, as we, as a lot of us maybe realize or Started, to, we're starting to realize that starting to talk about more um, exacerbates certain uh, social justice issues, right? Like certain, like a lot of marginalization, discrimination that we see in society can be exacerbated uh, by climate change. Uh, people who are marginalized, even in the smallest ways, tend to be more impacted by climate change than others. And what COVID has done has almost accelerated that. Because in the context of a pandemic, the communities that were suffering as a result of climate change are suffering even more as a result of a global pandemic. And so it allows us to sort of see that, you know, climate change is bad, COVID is bad, but COVID is almost in your face bad, whereas climate change is more in the background bad. And so by having something that's very much in your face bad, we are seeing people recognize that, oh my God, these, like, these specific communities are more susceptible to issues like we don't all face the same issues in um french we have the saying in relation to covid where it's um been malady du visage so one uh, one illness two faces right and it's the idea that not everyone is experiencing the disease in the same way and it translates to climate change in the sense that a lot of us are starting to realize very slowly but starting to realize that not everyone is experiencing climate change in the same way as well yeah i think we have a similar phrase uh, in english we say um we're all in in the same weathering the same storm but everyone has a different boat um recognizing the, the heterogeneity and those in those impacts that people are feeling for sure um yeah and kind of jumping off exactly what you were um talking about is there are there are a lot of similarities between climate change and the pandemic i've even heard the pandemic as described as a, as a dry run for the climate chaos that um, unfortunately is being predicted in terms of economic kind of shutdown, um, people who didn't necessarily contribute as much to the um, to the pandemic or the climate change being obviously most uh, impacted, like, like you said. Um, 
and and also about personal responsibility and and kind of sacrifice and this kind of collectivist kind of idea behind uh, how how we actually address these problems at both a individual level and a, and a systemic level. Uh, Gideon, can you help us uh, think a little bit more about some of those parallels um, along those lines? Sure. I mean. It there are a number of interesting parallels between COVID and climate change. I mean, one is, first of all, and obviously the potential for many deaths. I mean, um, climate change is, is bigger, but climate change is is causing death and suffering now, and, and clearly COVID is as well. The other piece, of course, is that they're both health crises, but they're also economic crises, and those things are very, very tightly connected. Right. So, you know, with climate change, if you're having flooding, if you're having drought, there's a clear economic uh, component to that. And, and you're also clearly impacting people's health. And we're seeing it already in lots of parts of the world. And similarly with COVID. And then uh, finally, and perhaps most powerful and most saddening is that there's a disproportionate effect on folks who are marginalized. Uh, poorer people, racialized people are being hit first and hardest. And none of this is new. I mean, if you look around the world in places where there's um, a lot of toxic dumps and uh, toxic waste tends to be poorer people, right? This, you can just map places that are, are environmentally most compromised tend to be the poorest as well. Um, and uh, lower income folks have the least ability to respond to COVID and, and they have the least ability to respond to climate change. They're hit first and they're hit hardest. Uh, so that's one of the parallels that we're seeing. Uh, th that's an obvious one. Um. And Chuck, I think actually you um, mentioned environmental racism and how uh, the pandemic may be kind of um, uh, exacerbating that. Uh, so can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, so um, in terms of sort of when we think about climate change and when we, there's, it's really fascinating because when we think about climate change, we think about environment and environmental racism, um, a lot of what Gideon mentioned comes to mind. Like we're talking about people being closer to um, um, more toxic areas, people having less access to clean water, less access to green spaces. Um, but it also manifests in, in very fascinating ways. So, for example, a study came out that demonstrated that women were more negatively impacted by climate change than men. And uh, I, I remember I was teaching a class about this, and I asked the girls, I'm like, uh, the girls in the class, I'm like, why do you think you guys are more impacted than boys when it comes to climate change? And they had no idea. And so the, what the study said is that um, when we see a lot of economic decline, uh, we tend to see an increase in domestic violence. Yeah. And climate change is negatively impacting the economy. And I don't know if a lot of I don't know if you guys saw the news uh, when COVID first came out. But concerned with having everyone being quarantined, concerned with having everyone in the home, is a lot of people who are going to be stuck in domestic violence situations or stuck in houses that weren't safe for them. And so it's 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 funny because COVID isn't really a driver for climate change, but it is really highlighting some of the issues that a lot of us have been talking about in relation to climate change, but now it's becoming a lot more visible. And so when we talk about environmental racism, we're also talking about, um, you know, the the different um, implications that this one, I'm calling it one, climate change isn't really one, one disaster like COVID is, but this one has upon, um, different people in the way that sort of manifests itself, right? So we've got how, like, indigenous communities, for example, have had to fully barricade 
themselves because they have no doctors. And so if one COVID case would enter, it's a lot deadlier than if they were in downtown Montreal and you've got like five different hospitals that you're able to access. And so COVID becomes that much more scary. But then at the same time, when you look at climate change, it's like food security. You can't barricade like going elsewhere. You have to, you know, leave the land that you've known your entire life, that you've known through generations, because the caribou are no longer following the same route that they used to follow. Or you, uh, the whales are not necessarily, I'm thinking about an Arctic, the whales are no longer able to come as inland as they can because of the permafrost melting. And all these very different uh, fascinating sort of scenarios where there's it's almost demonstrating how everything is interlinked. Like we have a habit of like segmenting things to understand them, right? Like we do this in science, we do this um, as a society, we like to segment it. We like to be like, this is an environmental issue. This is an indigenous issue. This is a can issue uh, without realizing that they're all so intertwined, so interlinked that when one thing is hurting, we will see impacts somewhere else. Guys, I'm so sorry. Uh, this has been an excellent conversation and we're going to come back, but uh, we do want to take a quick break uh, and we're going to try to debug some technical issues that I'm sure some of you may be uh, aware of at the moment. So uh, we'll be back in, uh, I think, five minutes at most, but uh, we apologize for the delay and we'll be back online in a moment. Hello. Guys, thank you so much for your patience. Uh, we are back. We fixed some difficulties. Uh, we've got a phone involved now and uh, anyways. I'll spare you the details. So um, last, when we left off, we were talking about um, some of the key similarities between the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, um, kind of at both individual level and also systemic level. Um, one of the other things I'd like to touch on now is also some of the, some of the ways that they're different um, because kind of there's issues of scale and uh, in, in terms of time, but also who, who's getting impacted. Um, so maybe uh, Chuck, could you, could you uh, help us understand some of those differences? Yeah, sure. So the difference between the coronavirus and climate change, I think, um, I think the key difference in coronavirus, the coronavirus and climate change, is inherent in what they are. So climate change is a secondary issue. Uh, that just means it's an amalgamation of many primary issues, right? Climate change seems so difficult to tackle because there's no one way of tackling it. Climate change comes as a result of a lot of urbanization in our society. It comes from people disconnecting with nature and so not feeling the need to protect it. It comes from um, not having good public transit infrastructure in a lot of places in Canada, so us using a lot of vehicles. It comes from cultural reasons, right? It's like uh, in certain places in Canada, um, buying a large truck that consumes all of, uh, a lot of diesel, for example, is considered a sign of success. And so it's like how do you change that culture? And so climate change is is this amalgamation of all of these different primary issues that all need to be tackled in order for us to see a true indent on climate change. Whereas COVID is a virus. It's a, there's, there's, a, there's a very specific way to tackle the virus directly. Right? The COVID has revealed a lot of um, social issues that we have and structural issues that we have as a society. But in the event of some sort of vaccination, some sort of medication for COVID, they're back to quote unquote normal. So that I think is that the, the main factor is that climate change is harder to see, it's harder to grasp, and it's harder to tackle versus COVID, where 
you can see it, you can see the impacts of it, and you can tackle it directly. You can you can create a COVID task force that actually goes after COVID versus a climate change task force um, should be multidisciplinary and they should all be frankly going in different directions. So I think that's uh, one of the main uh, differences I would yeah. believe. And I think that's kind of made people especially emotional um, and um, you know, when you when you think about someone not wearing a mask in a place where you are uh, walking through, you feel like you're personally put it, having your life put at risk, which is kind of a intimacy that you don't necessarily experience with climate change. Even though in some ways the risks are greater, but like you like you said, they're just so distributed across different um, scales and um, and times that uh, it's it's so hard to get a get a handle on. Um, Gideon, you wanna? Oh, sorry. That may be more of a similarity, in fact, because we do have a habit of individualizing societal issues, right? Like we have a habit of seeing an issue that we have in our community. And then rather than tackling the issue at a community level, we tackle it at an individual level saying, why aren't you doing that? Right? So we do the same thing in climate change where there's a lot of people who get very, you know, very upset when they see people using plastic straws, when they see people um, not, uh, not recycling properly, when they see people taking action that they believe are harming the environment and that, you know, to be to a fair extent, we do no harm the environment. And people get very, very personal, very, very, very personal offended because they know that this is a very sort of small microcosm of what is impacting uh, climate change. A little bit like the mask issue where, you know, you wear a mask to protect other people. So when you see other people not wearing a mask, you're, you're annoyed because you know that person's not making that same effort uh, to protect you. But at the same time, these, these are societal issues. These are not an individual issue. Because at a societal level, um, in many communities uh, that we've seen in other countries, we've seen this in Taiwan, we've seen this in Japan, in Korea, um, we've seen this in many communities in Africa. The second um, the WHO put out masks may be beneficial, and even before that, actually, for a lot of these communities, people were wearing masks automatically. And that's because culturally they were like, oh, it's obviously it's my duty to protect other people. Obviously it's my duty to be a member of this community and as a member of the community, this is what I should be doing. Whereas in Canada, we're in this very weird in-between where to a large sense we do have a sense of community, but to an equally large sense we are also very individualistic. Mm-hmm. And so is it honestly realistic to expect everyone to wear a mask when we've created a, community, we've created a society that, where we say to ourselves, it's all about me and getting, you know, and doing what I need to do for myself. And then all of a sudden we're all like, oh, no, I'm so offended he's not wearing a mask. But he's been culturally, you know, brought up in a, in a way that wearing a mask is infringing on his, I won't say freedom, freedom is not the right word, but infringing on his personal choices. And we've been brought up in a society that says your personal choice is very much valid and your personal choice is very much entirely up to you. Right, so that brings it a systemic issue. And then the other side of it also is, other than Alberta, there's no other province in Canada that's been giving out free masks. So you're mm-hmm. saying it's, you're required to wear a mask, but also we're not going to give you a mask. Whereas right? in a lot of these other communities, even in Korea, they were distributing masks to their citizens. Right. So we've also got that component in there as well, where we're telling people, do this, do that, do this. But also, we're going to pass the cost of doing those actions onto you. So for a lot of people, they're not even able to take those actions. Like when uh, we were being told socially distance, quarantine, isolate, all of that fun stuff. Um, when I could come back from travel, self-isolate for 14 days, do not go grocery shopping. Great, cool, fun stuff. 
But what about people who live in cities where they don't really know anyone? We mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. a country of immigrants. We have a lot of people who are first generation, who are the only generation here. So they don't know someone who well enough to be like, hey, can you, can you bring me groceries? Can you bring me food? And then there's a lot of societies that don't have delivery as an option. I'm lucky enough to be in Gatineau where there is delivery as an option. But then I did look into delivery as an option. The next available uh, window for delivery was two weeks from the day I was looking at it. Hmm. And so I'm like, by the time the delivery window is available, my quarantine is over. Am I just supposed to relax or come and starve and die? Is that the plan? No, I'm going to go to get groceries. Luckily, I haven't traveled. But if I just come back from a trip, because my trip was badly planned and then we entered lockdown and I just came back from my trip, I would very much be putting everyone's life at risk because the government is not helping out. Whereas, like, if you land in Korea right now, they've got this mandate. If you land in South Korea right now, you are put up in a hotel that the government pays for for two weeks, mm-hmm. and the government gives you food for those two weeks so that you are able to effectively self-isolate and it's not a financial imposition on you. Because they know the second that it becomes a financial imposition on you and you're not able to meet those financial obligations, then, you know, you're going to do what you have to do to survive. Or even in in Canada's case, all of us can meet those financial obligations to get food delivered. But if it's not available for two weeks, it's not available for two weeks. So it's a systemic issue. It's a societal systemic issue. So getting angry with an individual because they're going out uh, within that two-week time frame that they should not be going out. Getting angry with an individual because they're not wearing a mask ignores the fact that it's not that individual. It's a societal issue. And then we see the same thing again in climate change. So that's that's similarity. I know we should be talking about differences, but that's very much similarity. We see the exact same thing with climate change, where we're angry at that other person because they got a plastic bag from the shopping mall. They didn't bring their own reusable bag. But what if they're a mother of four, single mother of four, who just didn't have time to run home and grab a reusable bag? And reusable bag mm-hmm. is like five bucks a piece. You know, mm-hmm. and if you're working two jobs to like accommodate four kids, that five bucks is important for you. You know, it's all of these different things where we need to like have conversations about with ourselves as a society. Do we actually have equal access to putting in place measures that protect the environment and protect ourselves in terms of COVID and disease resilience? Um, do we all have that equal access, or is my access greater than someone else's? And what can we do to equalize that access? Yeah, yeah. I've even heard it framed as a kind of uh, a privilege to care about the environment um, because, like the reasons you're alluding, it's um, there are a lot of barriers to uh, engaging in those solutions um, if we don't implement them at kind of a higher level. And and maybe Gideon, I know you haven't spoken in a minute. Um, I'll go to you for for some more on some of those, especially because you're you know the policy level, um, some of those things as well. Uh, in terms of uh, differences, Jesse or. No, no, just just so I'm clear where where you wanted me to um, go. I mean, wherever you want to, but um, yeah, maybe some some lessons that we've learned um, from from um, COVID nineteen pandemic and how they um, what, how we can translate those to to addressing climate change uh, at a systemic level or even individual as well. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. I was doing CBC Radio a little while back, and and this came up, and um, so it gave me pause to do some thinking about it. I mean, I I think there are some very hopeful lessons actually that have come out of COVID that we can use uh, in our our fight against climate change. One obvious one, but again, very hopeful in my view is just how quickly we can change if we have to. 
as a society and as individuals. I mean, six months ago, who even knew the term social distancing? Who, you know, who was wearing masks? Who was, knew about, you know, social distance circles? Who knew about these things, right? And yet we've turned almost on a dime as a society. Uh, and, and it's really very impressive in many ways. I mean, we still have to figure out things and we're not there yet, but it is quite extraordinary how we have adjusted uh, the fact that we're flying much less, the fact that we're working from home so much more. That is all, I think, rather hopeful because it shows that we could make big changes that could also address the climate crisis. It shows that we can work and drive less. It shows that we can have business meetings and fly less, right? And we can do it very quickly if we have to. So I think that's one of the key lessons is that we can make big changes quickly if we need to as a society. I think the other thing that comes out of COVID is, in terms of a lesson is that we have to listen to the scientists. I mean, when we look back on the early days of COVID, what came up again and again was that our public health professionals, our medical officers of health, who after all are scientists, first and foremost, they were taking charge. And in most cases in Canada, we were listening to them, right? They were telling our mayors and our premiers and our federal government what to do. And in, in large measure, the politicians listened to them. It was very encouraging, at least in our country, I'm not talking about the whole world, in our country to see our politicians listening to the scientists. Here in Toronto, our mayor said, you know, Dr. Davilia, our, our medical officer of health told me that we can do X, and so we're gonna be doing X, based on what the medical officer of health, what she was saying. So that's very encouraging as well. And on the climate crisis, likewise, we have to listen to our scientists, right? Our scientists are saying, our best scientists are saying, we have to make dramatic reductions in, in our greenhouse gas emissions within the decade. So, um, we can listen to our scientists, we are listening to our scientists, and we have to do more of that. Uh, and that's one of the lessons. And then finally, I think another lesson coming out of COVID is that if we want to, we can work internationally uh, across silos in a quite nonpartisan way. And I think we were saying this in Canada as well. Opposition parties in government, um, at the provincial and the federal level, and in municipalities, councillors and mayors who may not have agreed on many things, were putting differences aside and working in a nonpartisan way for the betterment of uh, for public health. And I think that's very encouraging. Um, when we see that. We see internationally scientists and research teams working together uh, to try to find a vaccine. So again, it shows that if we want to, we can work internationally across boundaries, across borders, across parties uh, to, to do things that benefit humanity. So, I mean, I think those are, those are some of the lessons that I see coming out of this, that we can change quickly, that we can listen to our scientists, and that we can work across borders. Uh, those are hopeful lessons, and they can, and they can uh, uh, serve us very well in addressing climate change as well. Yeah. And not to put uh, too fine a point on it, but we can also see what happens when we don't do that. Um, so, so the, so indeed, the indeed, no, that's an excellent point. And in places, tragically, tragically, in parts of the world where they are not listening to their scientists, we're seeing these terrible upticks. We're seeing the 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 uh, the, uh, the pandemic uh, still raging like wildfire. Exactly. And in places where they have adhered more closely to what the scientists, the medical officers of health, are saying, we're seeing more positive results. Not, not perfect, but more positive. Sure. Yeah, those are all really, really excellent points. And I want to add in a little caveat is that we're learning which scientists we should listen to. Yes. Right? So with um, uh, there are a couple of 
mostly MD doctors who were spreading in misinformation, incorrect information about COVID at the beginning when we didn't know much. Uh, because people often, when we think of disease, we tend to automatically think, oh, a doctor must know more about a disease. Mm-hmm. And then now we're realizing that, no, it's the epidemiologist. Um, and so when it comes to climate change, there's a lot of times where someone's like, I'm a scientist and, you know, I don't believe in climate change for X, Y, Z reason. And it's like, okay, but yes, you're a civil engineer. I don't know how much you've studied this. <laughs> right? So I think we're learning, you know, to listen to the right kind of scientists for the right kind of situation. Not just because someone's a scientist doesn't mean they're expert in all science. You know, we tend to specialize in a very specific branch of science and a specific sliver of that branch of science. And I think the other thing that COVID is hopefully teaching the world, um, because I'm seeing it, but I also think a lot of people might not be seeing it. We're seeing science happen in real time. All times when people who are in science interact with science, they're seeing the result. And so they're seeing the quote, quote, perfect result. But what's happening in COVID is epidemiologists um, and virologists, pathologists around the world, you know, we've, we meet the disease. They're like, okay, judging from what we see here is our best guesses. And then as we learn more about disease, as we get more data, as we see what's happening to more people, we then modify recommendations, right? At first, we were like, there's no point in wearing a mask. A mask is not going to protect you from a virus. In fact, it might do more harm because you'll be touching your face a lot more. You'll be breathing a lot more of your carbon dioxide. It's just it's not a great option. And then as you progress through, we're like, actually, given that this passes through aerosols, it actually would reduce the transition if both people are wearing masks. If one person's wearing a mask and the other person's not, it might not be worth it. But if two people are wearing a mask, very much worth it. And so we're learning as we go along and we're seeing science happen in real time where scientists are not, I'm not going to say scientists are making mistakes because they're not making mistakes. What's happening is we're learning and that's what science is and that's the same thing with climate change, right? Because the messaging around climate change started with global warming and then we realized that you know, in certain places, it's getting colder. Yes, yes. globally, we're warm. In certain places, it's getting colder. And so yes. people would, like, latch onto the idea of, like, it's not hotter. These guys are wrong. And so we switch the terminology to climate change because we're like, the climate is changing. And then our recommendations change as we learn more and as we progress as a society. And so I'm hoping that people are able to make that, that comparison where they're like, this is what science is. Scientists aren't necessarily making mistakes, but they're using the best information they have at the moment to give a suggestion. And if that information changes, then the scientist's suggestion changes. It means that they made the mistake before, but it means they're constantly updating, they're constantly rebooting, like an iPhone. <laughs> or a live stream. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I, I 100% agree. And I think um, not only the world health, but researchers all around the world, like you, like you said, um, are sharing their data, sharing their science. You know, preprints are just uh, the main mechanism. We don't. I mean, peer review is important, but um, you know, pe- getting out the preliminary ideas and, and preliminary data is also very important. And I, I hope that that's something that we can um, kind of um, pass forward and, and continue to, to use uh, in the future um, for all sorts of um, different disciplines. Maybe one of the other things that I was hoping we could touch on um, is this opportunity economically for us to kind of reboot. There's been a lot of uh, unfortunate economic losses, but at the same time, uh, I think there's a lot of liquid assets, we could say, that are like ready to be reinvested um, after kind of tanking. And I'm not an economist by any means, but I'm just wondering if, um, if you want to comment on, a little bit on um, how we might 
uh, approach that. And I've heard this, you know, the Green New Deal um, the, or the Green Recovery. I think even the David Zuki Foundation has the Build Back Better kind of campaign going on right now. So uh, Gideon, can you kind of tell us a little bit about what that's hoping to achieve? Yeah, this is also, I think, uh, Jesse, a very, a very hopeful possibility here. And I'm not an economist myself, so I say that at the outset. But um, we do have this opportunity uh, to build back better, as we've said. I mean, um, many people have said we're not the first, that you know, going back to normal uh, is not going to serve us very well because normal was the problem, right? Consumerism, en enormous use of fossil fuels, uh, car use, truck use, uh, these sorts of things, um, uh, meat, agriculture, th these were certainly problematic, to put it mildly. So we have to build back better. But the good news is that we can do a lot of these things. So let me take a, a, something that I work on a lot is, is public transit. And, and particularly within public transit, we're really excited these days about electric buses. So this seems to us one of the examples of a build back better solution. So let's say we put uh, a lot of money and, and the federal government actually to their credit is putting money, but let's say we continue to ramp up the, the creation and distribution of electric buses in cities across Canada. So in our view, it would just check so many boxes. Needless to say, it's a clean air solution, right? Because you're, uh, you're not burning fuel. Um, the buses can be built here in Canada. And in fact, we already have the manufacturing capacity in Quebec, in Manitoba, to build electric buses. So we could build them right here. We could create jobs. People could build those buses. Then we could create jobs by hiring people to drive the buses, to maintain the buses, to build the, uh, the storage facilities for the buses. And there's electrical infrastructure that goes, to, uh, goes with electrical buses in terms of recharging. At each step there, you're, you're, prime, you know, you're supporting the economy, you're creating jobs, you're creating really good jobs, right? I mean, the, the drivers, many of those drivers are unionized, which is a good thing. So they have job security. Those are good jobs. They're jobs that I think give people a sense that they're contributing to a community. I mean, if you're a bus driver, you're, you're contributing in a very fundamental way to, to the life of your community. Um, and that, I think, would be quite gratifying for people. So the electric bus is really a good example, in our view, of a solution that just has a whole range of co-benefits. Uh, and, and, and not just the sort of things that David Suzuki Foundation would talk about in terms of clean air and climate change, which are absolutely there. I mean, uh, um, but but all these economic benefits and job benefits. And the other piece, of course, is that unlike some transit solutions, which we also support, like subways, um, you can get uh, electric buses up and running rather quickly. You can build them in much, much shorter time, which we really need uh, than, than a subway system. So that's an example, I think, that really captures the kind of excitement that we're feeling about the Build Back Better uh, things that check all these boxes and have a whole range of co-benefits as we try to uh, get out of this economic and health crisis. Yeah. And and I also appreciate that it's an opportunity to kind of address uh, a lot of inequalities uh, that are at the systemic level. So, Ab Absolutely. I mean, disproportionately, it's lower income folks that are using public transit. So when we put money into public transit, and we absolutely should, we need to put more federal and provincial money into public transit, we are disproportionately benefiting lower income folks. We're, we are supporting, fortunately, we're for, supporting folks who have had a very tough time, uh, who in many cases can't afford to take other, other means of transit. So there's absolutely a social justice and an equity uh, component baked right in when we ramp up public transit. And, and I think um, I think with the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that it seems people spending more time alone, maybe less time um, 
I don't want to call it superficial, but less time out in the community, kind of going through the rigmarole of every day. Um, people have really had a lot more time to reflect on um, in the context of the pandemic. And I think maybe it's a, it's a time to shift kind of our values and what we hope to prioritize um, with, these, with these policies um, and even just in our day-to-day -day actions. Um, Chuck, I don't know if you wanted to add anything there. I'm sure you... Uh, I think Gideon covered pretty much all of it. I mean, funny enough, the Canadian Association for Physicians for the Environment, Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, I call them ACME, even though they never use their French acronym, um, <laughs> also put out a, um, a Build Back Better plan as well um, that comes, you know, sort of, that's very sort of heavily sci uh, science, you know, with a lot of, you know, decarbonizing the economy and whatnot. And so I think a lot of these, it's really, really interesting because I see a lot of environmental organizations putting forth um, these really great solutions on ways that we can make our economy greener. But we also need to like remember to in integrate sort of that justice element into it and really sort of highlight that uh, component as well. And so things like, you know, when we talk about, for example, um, the when we talk about the economy, uh, first of all, the first thing that COVID impacted even before we were in lockdown was the Chinese community, right? Mm -hmm. People stopped going to uh, Chinese restaurants, people yep. stopped frequenting businesses run by Chinese Canadians. Yep. And so there was that pushback um, in terms of social justice to be like, let's go out and support these communities. And then the Black Lives Matter movement um, really sort of uh, became a larger deal in Canada than we've seen before. And then a lot of people were like, oh, we need to support black businesses. And these are very sort of, it's really interesting because these are very sort of unsustainable ways of supporting community, right? Because at some point, every community is going to go through something. And so it's creating sustainable, authentic ways in which communities can fully thrive in who they are. I mean, even going to the public transit example that uh, Gigan gave, um, I believe there was a news report and a couple of studies that show that young people in North America are less and less buying cars. Yeah. And a lot of them are not to get uh, driver's licenses. And the reason for that is just it's no longer sort of something that we value as a sign of success. Instead of buying a car, you're more likely to plan a trip and go to another country and backpack. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people are still down with the whole like, buying a house and investing in land. But when it comes to buying a car, it's just no longer seen by a lot of young people as a worthwhile investment. And so young people are disproportionately affected when it comes to um you know, the improvements in public transit because we locally depend on it uh, to a very large extent uh, to be able to also, like, maintain our ideal of our values. But at the same time, what COVID has demonstrated is COVID is like, ooh, public transit, you sure you want to share space yeah. <laughs> with someone yeah. else who could be sick? Um, and so I think it also highlights, like, how can we ensure that public transit is resilient throughout yeah. A pandemic. I mean, luckily, all cities, as far as I'm aware, have maintained the public transit throughout the entire pandemic, but not without cost, right? There's a lot of people right. that have gotten COVID from using the metro in Montreal. And so it's that whole idea of like, how can we be fast? How can we create resilient communities? How can we create a resilient economy? How can we produce something that isn't a band-aid that we're going to regret not doing this down the line? But how can we do something right from the get-go? And with the economy, it's hard. I mean, I'm not going to come an economist. I feel bad for economists because they are working in this sort of virtual, like, futuristic space where 
they could be wrong, they could be right, they could be half right. It's, it's, <laughs> economics is not a science, <laughs> and I feel bad for them on that front. But it is one of those things where um, one of my favorite quotes is by um, Alice Ehrlich, and she says that we, because we're acknowledging that we're already in the anthropocene, we're already in sort of that era where human beings have the largest impact on the planet. Yeah. Um, the good side of that is that means the future is what we make it. Since we have impacted the world to this extent, it means that we can also be that really positive force in the world. We can be, we can create systems and societies that value the environment, that value each other, that value humanity. And in doing so, we also allow more people to engage with discussions on climate change because mm-hmm. it's the being on the street having to protest that black lives do indeed matter. Or, for example, as a frank opponent of being on the streets having to protest that, like, let's not get rid of uh, of laws that protect francophones in Ontario, please. You know, we can use that same energy to be like, no, the climate matters. Let's find ways to do this. But instead of that, you've got a climate change movement that's very largely white. And then all the other communities who also care about climate change just don't have that energy to be fighting for their rights and then also jump in the fight for climate change. Right. So the more we're able to create an inclusive economy that is resilient, the more we're able to let people have that time and energy to participate in the public discourse and also fight for the environment and fight for things that are good. I think um, one of the things that COVID showed us, especially the Black Lives Matter movement, is when people are able to work from home, when people are able to control their own schedules a bit more, and when people are able to have that time to think and reflect and engage in public discourse. They care. But, you know, when we're running around doing the right race, when we're like, okay, my commute is an hour, and then I have to work for, you know, from this time to this time, and mm-hmm. then get home, need to cook, need to look after the kids, need to do this, need to do that. Versus when you're in a more flexible society that we officially have created for the sake of COVID, then you're able to be like, okay, I'm reflecting now. I've got time to like reflect. Oh, the kids need something. You know, it's not a big deal if I step away from my computer for an hour, for two hours, and then come back to it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it allows for that flexibility. It allows for that engagement. And so, um, yeah, the, the world is what we make of it. And I think that's both incredibly scary and very exciting. Yeah. Hmm. I think that's a, that's a great way to wrap up uh, our kind of, uh, conversation just between us here and and now uh, I, recognizing with the delay we w- will probably go a little bit late here if that's okay with you guys um, uh, we want to go to some questions that we had sure. from the audience coming in so uh, I'll Great. hit you with some of those in just now um, so kind of at an international level there is um, even between countries this idea of disproportionate uh, contributions and also risk for, with climate change so um, how, how should we approach countries which are not pri- privileged enough to consider broader aspects of environmental sustainability uh, and what col- po- kinds of policies are needed in, the, in those countries? Um, so we're talking about countries that are really struggling with, with poverty and is it reasonable to ask them to make a climate change cont- uh, action? Yeah, and, and maybe what are some of the rules um, of other countries um, to kind of support some of that development or mitigation adaptation, um, or or what types of policies can we um, can we request, or how, or how do we even have those conversations at an international level, um, or yeah. 
I'm happy to jump in for quickly on that, and then and Chuck will have more, I'm sure. But I mean, the, the first thing to recognize is that poor countries generally were not the culprits that created climate change. Most of it is has been done since the Industrial Revolution by wealthier countries, right? So um, again, just as on the individual scale, uh, low-income folks suffer first and worst, so poor countries uh, contributed least and tend to suffer most, especially if they're low-lying countries that are on uh, on oceans or island states where they feel the impacts of, uh, of the climate crisis immediately. So, I mean, the first thing to say is that there is a responsibility of wealthier countries who were more responsible for creating the climate crisis to support financially and in other ways through things like technology transfer, um, countries whose economies are struggling, right? I mean, the good news is that in some of these countries, for example, they can um, skip over the fossil fuel stage, if you will, and go directly to renewable energy. Um, you know, I mean, there are a lot of countries in in very warm parts of the world um, that can that can get uh, uh, most, if not all, of their uh, uh, energy from things like wind and solar power. So I think it's incumbent on wealthier countries to support that, so that poorer countries can go directly to the renewable world that we need. That that I mean, there's there's many policy responses. That would be one obvious one: supporting renewable energy in these struggling economies. Um, I agree with that. I think um, there's this model of uh, what I believe is called climate financing uh, yeah. that sort of um, has wealthier countries contributing to a fund that uh, poorer countries are able to access to be able to implement um, uh, measures that they need in order to combat climate change. I also think uh, you know this, this is why it's important to have conversations around decolonization of processes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, for example, I remember when I was much younger and i was an intern in an environmental organization in china and mm. they needed an english-speaking intern because to access undp funding united nations development program funding they had to apply in english right. and so they needed an intern who was able to translate the questions from like english to chinese for them to then respond to the questions and then translate the responses from chinese to english and then also then modify the, the responses in such a way that it would be well received uh, by a Western uh, grant giver. Mm -hmm. And this has been seen time and time again in many different places across the world where, um, you know, there was an article that recently came out where it was like, there's a there's deep pockets in the Silicon Valley for tech startups in Africa, but not if you're African trying to lead it. Hmm. Right, so it's, it's having to navigate the um, two worlds, right? And so it's one of the reasons why I see myself as privileged because I because I uh, come from Canada. I know how to write a grant application in a way that an audience uh, uh, that most grant reviews will receive positively. But that doesn't mean I'm having the best ideas, right? There's other people that have phenomenal ideas but that don't have that same access. Whether it's a linguistic barrier because all of these applications are only available in English, whether mm -hmm. it is a an educational barrier because they want it framed in a certain manner. And you might not have the educational background to be able to put restructure in that manner, but that doesn't mean that you would misuse the funds. That doesn't mean the idea would be not well received. And so, I think that's what. So, in terms of money, it's important to have access to that money. And I think a lot of countries are putting access to that money. I believe, if I remember correctly, it's not enough, but there's a lot happening on the financial side. But in terms of countries being able to access that money and do things that are authentic to them, 
rather than having an external organization come in and do things for them, mm-hmm. that there's still a lot, a long way to go. So we need to talk about uh, decolonizing processes in that case. Yeah. Yeah, excellent point. Yeah, I think it speaks to all sorts of uh, of additional layers of privilege that maybe we're becoming more and more aware of, um, from racial privilege, obviously, with the Black Lives Matter movement recently, um, but also aspects of environmental privilege. And and I think one of the um, framings of privilege that I heard recently that it really resonated with me was it's a responsibility. It's recognizing that you are in this living this great life that you might have. Uh, or at least it's better than it would be without that privilege. And that entails a responsibility that you turn back and actually do something about um, the kind of downstream effects of uh, having lived your life with that privilege. Um, yeah. and, and maybe that's something as a value that we'll kind of take away from, um, from this pandemic as well, or this crisis, yeah. Just to like add to that, actually, um, there was a reading I did in a sociology course I took, and this has stuck with me so powerfully and it's the idea of transfer of health. And so in Western countries, we live longer and longer every year. You know, our life expectancy improves. But in certain countries, you're not seeing that same improvement of life expectancy right. because we're effectively asking them to do things that we won't do for ourselves. So we're transferring their lives to our own. So, for example, the people who are um, uh, creative free, picking uh Collecting fruits, picking fruits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, for example, fruit pickers, like they are in the sun, dealing with pesticides, dealing with all these, this, these things that are shortening their lives to get us fruits that I'm then able to go to Metro and purchase. So, right. I'm able to take the benefit of the fruit without the danger of having collected that fruit. And so, their life, they've literally transferred years of their life to me mm. by me not having to do that and them doing that on, you know, on behalf of me. And so recognizing that one of the reasons why we live long is yes, we have a good healthcare system and whatnot, but also we don't have to do a lot of things that theoretically we should have to do to live because someone else is doing it for us and someone else is risking their life for us to be able to live our lives. Yeah. That's a really excellent point, which hardly anyone makes. Yeah. I love that framing too, that health transfer. Yeah. Um, I think we don't have time for too many more questions. I'll try to squeeze one more here. Um, it's, it's about the opportunity cost of COVID-19. Uh, so climate change was previously, uh, potentially now maybe coming again, a number one issue with Canadians. Um, do you think that as we recover from COVID-19, um, so far in our experience, is the government actually demonstrating that they have, that they're willing to kind of have that green shift um, through the policies that they've been enacting so far. Um, do, do you think that that's plausible or is it just something that we're, we're hoping for at this point based on um, you know, the actions they've actually taken? Uh, well, <clears throat> like many of these things, it's complicated. And, and the answer would be, I think, uh, yes and no. I mean, I think that the government is rolling out a phenomenal amount of money. And I think some of it unfortunately, is going to um, underwrite uh, the fossil fuel sector, which is very unfortunate from many points of view, not least economic, because I don't think the fossil fuel sector does any favors to Alberta and Saskatchewan, frankly. I think it's a downward spiral. It doesn't really help them in the long term. But so some money is going to protect that sector, unfortunately. I think as well, though, the federal government is putting money into things like public transit, um, which is a good thing. 
Um, they've just announced recently they're going to be putting in uh, up to a $1.8 billion into public transit uh, that will be matched by the provinces. Uh, so that that is very useful. Um, that is a good thing. And as I mentioned earlier, that will create employment and uh, be good for the climate and air, air quality. Um, and uh, it'll be a significant job creator. So I, I would say that at least at the federal level, the government is going in different directions. I think they are doing some things that are very smart coming out of COVID and that will help us to build back better. And I think they're doing some things uh, like investing in, um, in sunset industries like the fossil fuel sector, which will not serve us well. As the resident of Britain. Um, <laughs> Um, I think one of the things that, you know, whenever we talk about the oil and gas industry in Alberta, it's not just an economic thing, it's a cultural thing. The oil and yes. gas built up our parks. Good know, point. Our, it's called the Edmonton Oilers and the Calgary yep. Flames. Like, we're so yep. attached to oil as an identity marker that um, that part is a little bit difficult. And the previous NDP government in Alberta tried to switch that cultural discourse from us being the oil province to being the energy province. And then we started investing in green energy. And then right. the new government came in and they're like, nope, we're an oil province, back to that. Um, but it's one of those things where that discourse needs to that discourse needs to happen at a local level. And I think to a large extent the federal government panders a little bit. But at the same time, you know, Albertans can be very loud, so it's hard to ignore. <laughs> hard to ignore. Uh, <laughs> but I also, you know, very much sort of agree with Gideon in the sense that like, they're doing some things that I think could be very interesting in building back. But they're also missing a lot of things at the same time. So I think, uh, for example, what the Black Lives Matter movement has highlighted for a lot of government officials, uh, pre-transfer service has been very lucky to have been contacted by many government officials and have, start having conversations, um, is the government is very much about checklists. You know, and so for the last couple of years, their big focus has been indigenous groups, indigenous organizations, indigenous people, uh, which is incredibly important, very, very important. But as a result of them having that sort of um, linear focus, they completely ignored black people. And they completely ignored, you know, a lot of other sort of visible minorities. And then the federal government has a habit of, and I think a lot of us have seen this when you fill out, you know, surveys from the federal government, either you're indigenous or you're a visible minority. And that, you know, to a limited extent can be fine sometimes, but in situations of, for example, the summer job grants, they found that the federal government, you know, requires that at least 20% of those grants go towards visible minorities, and last year they found that 18% had gone to visible minorities. However, they don't know if that entire 18% were South Asian Canadian, and so zero black people benefited, or if it was well distributed. They don't know if that entire 18% were in Anglophone companies, and so non-white Francophones had no benefit. Mm -hmm. And so you've got all these things where the all these holes are being so strongly um, demonstrated, you know, in terms of, you know, we're in a bilingual country, yet if you are in, frankly, most of Canada, outside of Quebec, you probably will not have access to medical care in French. So imagine that I had been, like, stuck traveling <laughs> in northern BC, and I was like, oh, no, COVID, and then, oh, no, I'm feeling sick. You know, what am I supposed to do at that point? Right. Yeah. Am I, like if I'm sick and delirious and barely breathing, am I also supposed to be like, let me also speak in my second language <laughs> in my mm -hmm. country? That's supposed to be bilingual. Um, so it's so I think the federal government has been trying to do what they can, but because they tend to have a very siloed view of things, 
um, they are missing a lot and because they're not able to look at the intersections of things. Because a lot of government departments don't really work together well. You know, they don't they don't talk to each other, don't communicate, don't share resources. There's a resource that uh, Larissa Crawford produced in terms of how to engage with indigenous communities that was given to um, CRA, the Canadian Revenue Agency. And then Global Affairs recently asked us to produce the same thing for them. And it's like, you know, okay, we can copy-paste, but you guys should really be talking to each other. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that the pandemic has made so clear to us is just how integrated so many of the systems uh, that we interact with on a day-to-day basis really are. Um, and no doubt something that will be continued to be emphasized in, in our response and experience of climate change. Um, unfortunately, we are out of time by now. So uh, guys, I really want to thank you again for joining us. It was a really excellent discussion and I'm so honored to have spoken with you guys. Thanks so much. It was great. Merci pour l'invitation. <laughs> Merci. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you found this discussion informative. To kick off season five, the COVID Decoded series hosts sat down for a roundtable reflection on what we learned from the series and the pandemic at large. You can check it out in episode 80, as well as the other COVID Decoded streams wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using our affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Thank you.